0: Nonprofit founders and leaders, change makers and dreamers, are you searching for new ways to be heard amidst the overwhelming noise and confusion of these uncertain times? Giving Heartbeat is the place to make connections and ignite sparks of compassion into forces for good and together turn unsung heroes into everyday superheroes. Conversations with dynamic nonprofit champions from across the planet reveal how they turned passion into action and obstacles into achievements. I'm your host, Donna Valente. Welcome. Over the past three decades, I've met hundreds of incredible nonprofit changemakers from around the world. It's my passion and mission to promote them. This is Giving Heartbeat. Welcome. I'd like to welcome to the Giving Heartbeat studio Michael Bethune, who has over 25 years of leading and serving some of society's most vulnerable populations through the nonprofit sector. He himself is once a homeless military veteran whose life's calling and purpose emerged from his own pain. Good morning, Michael, and welcome.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Don. Thanks for having
0: me. You're welcome. I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about your journey, where you started. I know you were in the military, and when you came home, had um, undergone some some very difficult times. Would you like to tell us about that?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, um, I'm originally born in Patterson, New Jersey, and uh, uh, after high school, I realized that I didn't want to stay in Patterson, especially in the part that I was born in. It was a lot going on, um, you know, drug addiction and, a lot you didn't see a whole lot of, uh, um, hope for the future. Let's say that. So, uh, I thought I was going to get some, uh, pretty good scholarships because I was a, a good athlete and a good student, but I didn't get the, the schools coming after me that I, that I desired. So I opted for the military and I went with the Corps of Engineers and, um, went to the Corps of Engineers, we're talking in the early 80s right now, and uh, by 83, I was a 20-year-old, my unit was sent to the border of Nicaragua uh, to defend Honduras against uh, Nicaraguan rebels. Back then, it was a Contra, Sandinista, the whole thing with Colonel Oliver North was there, Marines were there, and uh, our unit was there to build bridges, blow bridges, whatever, you know, things that engineers do, build um, uh, runways so that C-130s can bring in supplies and all. We the um, Honduran Army to begin to protect themselves um, after a while. And uh, that was a hostile zone. I mean, you know, things happen there. People lost their lives. um, And uh, it wasn't as intense like, uh, you know, like Iraq or Vietnam, but it was more covert operations. You know, as a matter of fact, America didn't even hear a lot about it until after we had gone in and done some things already. And I I was there for six months, you know, as a young guy, there's no reference point for that kind of thing. So um, I came out of there and uh, my mind was pretty messed up. I even I developed uh, an addiction there because that's what people were we're doing there to just function. You have to be almost monster-like, you know, um, just to function in that environment, not knowing what's around the next bush. uh, Just the psychology of it all um, can really mess you up. So when I came home, um, I needed counseling for a number of different things. I mean, I was just, uh, I was pretty pretty messed up in my head. I got some counseling for PTSD. I got some help with addiction, et cetera, and, from the VA hospital in New Jersey, Lyons, New Jersey. Shout out to those people. Thank you. Um, And eventually, uh, spirituality came into my life. Some good, solid Christian people began to share Christianity with me, but not in um, an over-the-top way. Like, they would talk to—they would even come around and hang around us us young vets and just be with us and hear our stories and all. And and they didn't really feel a need to talk a lot of Scripture, but they demonstrated— God's love to us um, through their humanity. And that was intriguing to me because I had never seen that brand of Christianity, if you will. I just heard a whole lot of talk, but I had never seen people really demonstrate the love like that, especially to bro- broken young people like we were. And so that began my journey, this journey of compassion for other human beings that I've been on for uh, a long time now. That's the mm-hmm. nutshell of my my the first leg of my journey, if you will.
0: Interesting. Well, I found you on Facebook when you were talking about <clears throat> onto the least of these, um, which I thought was intriguing because it gave the viewpoint of the person that's receive- on the receiving end. And you talk a lot about the difference between charity and compassion. And um, I just thought it was such an important viewpoint. And I read it. I underlined many, many lines in here and um i'd like you to talk a little bit about what led you to write that book and how it's been received and and just a little bit more behind that
1: please yes so um so once uh i began to realize that my pain was propelling me into my life's purpose which was to be a servant to humanity and to help help humanity the, the 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 most vulnerable segments of humanity. Um, uh, I've worked with uh, homeless youth and uh, battered women and other veterans and just people who are, you know, oftentimes ostracized and overlooked and unfairly categorized and labeled when really they planned for life and life happened. And a lot of times they didn't cause their own, own situation. So, um, uh, as a result, I ended up going back to school and, um, and I say this in humility, but I've been blessed to get a couple of degrees in all in counseling because I wanted to know more from the clinical side of things and from the spiritual side of things. I wanted to know how to help people from both sides of those spectrums because um, that's what makes up my life and that's what helped bring me out of my situation. It was good clinical counseling and it was good spiritual guidance. And um, uh, and so um, I went did that, got those degrees and and was able to help people, not just from my experience, but also from some good technical know-how as well. And um, in doing so, and working in certain organizations, uh, for instance, I'll mention um, Covenant House is an organization that I love. I served there for eight years uh, in Newark, New Jersey. They work with homeless youth that have aged out of foster care, which represents uh, the, um, the second highest rate of homelessness which is 18 to 21 year olds in America, the second highest rate of the homeless population. They're, they're hiding in plain sight. They look like your children, my children, but they're all over the place because they've aged out of foster care. They didn't get adopted and they hit 18. They're given a check and told to fend for life. Well, how do you do that when you've been in group homes and and, you know, some of them have horrific stories of what foster parents did to them. So they're thrown to the streets and they I could show you right now in Newark, New Jersey, right down on the banks of the river, Passaic River, where there's encampments and tents that go for miles of homeless youth, 18 and 21 year olds. So I was, there, I was their case manager, pastoral minister, spiritual leader for eight years down there. I love those young people. And um, uh, to your question, more specifically to your question, sometimes I would take them with me to churches that would ask me to come out and speak and talk about coming the house, etc. And I would see how some of the people would really be standoffish from my young people once they knew that they were living in a homeless shelter and all the rest of that. And, and from what I studied in seminary over at Drew University in Madison, to see some of these people's behavior, it was just it was just the, the exact antithesis to what Jesus is in the scripture to me. I'm like, this is terrible. This, this, this shouldn't be. I mean, if anything, we should be embracing them and, and, and drawing them in and trying to be some kind of a source of healing for them. So um, I was already in writing mode, uh, finishing up seminary at that time. And so this, this mantle to write this book was really just draped upon me um, to create a tool that could help churches, nonprofits, whoever works with the most broken segments of humanity to do it from a more compassionate standpoint and to help realize that it's not just that you give, but it's how you give when you give, because you can give a person a shirt, a coat, um, some food and all the rest of that. and, And that's a great thing. But if when you do it in the process of doing it, You know, you have condescending spirit and uh, us and them kind of spirit. And and that that's not the Jesus of the scripture that I know. So I was compelled to write that book. And that's how I try and live out my faith as well. And I was I was also homeless as well. I visited soup kitchens. I ate at soup kitchens. You know, I mean, my pride. uh, When I came back to New Jersey from a military situation, my my pride kept me from coming around my a lot of my relatives and like I didn't have to be homeless my mom and dad at home my brothers and sisters and all that but I didn't want to bring what I deemed to be my craziness because I couldn't really categorize it and I didn't know how sporadic it would be so I didn't want to bring that around my mom my dad and all so I did my best to stay away from them and I was intentionally homeless I, I would you know I was trained to to sleep on the terrain and all that, and I did that for a while until I eventually went into you know um, this this one uh, Christian place that really helped me out. But um, um, I remember I remember going through a soup line. I won't name the place, but it's in New Jersey. I'm going through a soup line, and you know here I am. I just come back from defending this country, and and defending this person's freedom. And, you know, and right to life and all the rest of that, that, you know, Constitution, everything else that we have here in America. And man, I was I felt horrible based on the way they treated. I didn't even eat the meal. I just walked out. That's how horrible I felt. So all those factors combined um, led to me uh, having to write this book unto the least of these 12 stages towards genuine compassion. Jesus, the scripture says over and over again, I want to get preachy right now, but. When you look at the life of Christ, you see clearly that when he, whenever he came in contact with broken humanity in any capacity, it says 30 or 40 times that he was either moved with compassion or filled with compassion. And if we're trying to be Christ-like, then some of that ought to be coming out of us as well. So that's that's the horse that I ride in, in, in on this journey here. Well, I
0: yeah. was re- Beautifully written, and I would recommend it to anybody doing any kind of human service work, whether it's a church or, or, not a church. Um, it, because if you're helping people, then you should be doing it out of a sense of duty to one's neighbor, to one's brother. Not that you're better than, or because it makes you feel better for for making so much money. You're going to give some away to yeah. you know, make pat yourself on the back or whatever. Um, I just thought it was, it was really beautifully written and, um, and I would recommend it. Highly recommend it. Is there any one or are there a couple of points that you'd like to make from that to share from the book?
1: From the book? Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, counting the cost is a big deal for me. The scripture talks a lot about counting the cost. Um, I've seen over the years, 25 years in uh, nonprofit ministry, one capacity or another, that uh, very well-meaning people, you know, who who come with the with the what I believe to be the right motives most of the time, um, they come into places or they come into cities where inner cities where there's broken people, and uh, sometimes they make a mistake of coming in and wanting to. Because they come in with wealth and a lot of resources and the ability to get things done uh, a lot quicker um, than the stakeholders that are already in the community. Um, it's more effectively done when you count the cost and you come alongside. If you really, really, really want to make a difference in the lives of the broken, then you have to you have to come alongside. Um, those leaders that are already in that community and not just come top down and usurp the power from them and just plop your paradigm or agenda on them. that's, that just perpetuates the brokenness, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, And then too, just counting the cost, a lot of groups I've seen along the way come into places like covenant house and um, um, uh, other places that I've served. And uh, they, they, say they're going to be there for the long haul but when they encounter you know some of the youth and some of the the brokenness right the difficulties that people deal with mental illness um, homelessness etc they end up bailing out they establish these relationships and now these people these vulnerable people have learned to trust again and believe in humanity again and then the group bails out on them because they didn't count the cost in the beginning you know, and be ready for the, the, the full journey, whatever that be, a year commitment, six months commitment, you know, you really got to count the costs before you go into these places as, as an individual or as an organization.
0: So are you talking about co- um, the emotional costs as well as as um, monetary?
1: Uh, uh, absolutely. That's mainly what I'm talking about, not necessarily monetary. Um, yeah, I'm definitely talking about count- counting the emotional costs and knowing that, you know, um, you're going to encounter uh, some people who are just, you know, unstable in a lot of ways and, and the world that they live in is quite different from the world that, that you come from and and it can be scary, it can be scary to people and I understand, rightfully so, uh, but you have, to, you have to do your homework up front before you get ready to make that kind of commitment. You know, um, I would suggest you go into instead of instead of saying we're going to be here for three months, or we're going to be here for six months. I would say uh, find a way to maybe on a couple weekends in a row, bring the group down and get familiar with the people and get familiar with the environment and all. And then go back to the drawing board and determine whether or not this is something that you guys are really up for. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it, it, you know, it can hurt in a lot of different ways.
0: That makes sense. If you're. Uh, saying you're going to support something and then bail, then that's going to make everybody in a much worse situation I would think. Yeah. And then bring that trust level down even further.
1: Yeah. That's right.
0: So Do you want to talk a little bit about your new ministry that you're starting on Friday or that you're launching?
1: On Sunday? This Sunday? coming Sunday? Yeah. This coming Sunday, yeah. This coming Sunday at 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, so I have a private Facebook group called the University of God's Grace and Mercy. It's a pri- private Facebook group, and I'm going to be launching um, 10 years ago. Uh, I, well, I like to call it vision, right? Um, not myopic vision, but vision in the heart. God spoke something into my heart, and my experience um, informed it as well uh, to start. And I was going to start this physically last year, but... Um, Covid hit, and a lot of other things, you know, factors came into play that that inhibited me from um, from launching. Uh, but the vision was given to me. Literally sitting by, I don't know if you know, you know, Mars Town, um, sitting by Lewis Mars Park, the lake there, Lewis Mars Park. And uh, ten years ago, sitting in my car and just reading through the scriptures, and I read through Isaiah chapter fifty-eight, and he started talking about this term, "Repairer of the Breach," and I dug more into it. And just that whole chapter absorbed me. And the gist of it is uh, it says that these, these people were saying that how do we fast? How do we fast? How do we make a commitment um, to God? And back then they were doing a lot of uh, religiosity stuff, I'll call it, rituals, empty rituals, sackcloth and ashes and painting their faces and all kind of things and making themselves up to look more poorer because the mindset was, the poorer you looked and the more you debased yourself, the more spiritual you were. And then the text has this abrupt turn in it where God says, this is not the fast that I want anymore. This means nothing to me. The fast that I want from this point forward is for you to go into the highways and byways, open up the eyes of the blind, loose the chains of the captives, feed the poor, clothe the naked, etc." He said, when you do this, then your healing will also come about and you will be called the repairer of the breach, whatever that's broken, repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets for people to dwell in. And so that's where the mission of RTB comes from. It'll be when we launch physically, it'll be that kind of ministry. I'm not even calling it a church. I'm calling it a life and transformation center, life, worship and transformation center, RTB. That's what it'll be. So, we're launching online, and um, you know, the the gist of the preaching or teaching that I do and who I am is always about uh, compassion and liberation and freeing people up, uh, helping to free them up to be the best version of themselves that they can be, um, helping to dispel stereotypes and helping them to break free from whatever people have. Society has called them, you know, and or categorized them. This ministry here speaks to those kind of things to say, you don't have to buy into any of that. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what kind of upbringing you had, but you, you have breath and you're a part of the human family and you're a candidate to make, to, to have your life, uh, the quality of your life made better too. And we believe that that's all God work. So, so that's, that's, I hope I'm, hitting it the way I uh uh would like to hit it but um but I think I think that's sufficient that's what RTB is um in essence
0: and so is that going to be a weekly program
1: weekly yeah it's just like just like going to church on Sunday morning but it'll be more teaching and this kind of information that you and I are talking about right now informing people um, helping people know where resources are um uh those kind of things, you know, teaching from the scripture, but also I'll get into some clinical counseling. I'll I'll bring, you know, I have twenty five years worth of colleagues from all over the country that'll come on and teach um, different things. Um, I have one of my friends in the group. Uh, she she has a uh, her name is uh, Latoya Smith. She went to seminary at Drew with me. She she opened up a um, clinical counseling center in um, in Texas. I forget the part of Texas. You know, and are uh, all women staff, and and they're doing their thing down there. You know, then their their focus is on women. So I had her on Sharon. So I will be doing those kind of things on on um, Sunday morning. Will be the more spiritual aspect of it, but I'll be doing other RTB stuff throughout the week.
0: Well, cool. And how can people find that?
1: Uh, they can they can uh, friend me. You can friend me on Facebook. Um, or you can look for you can look for RTB. Well, it's a private group, so you're going to have to get in through somebody who's already in the group. So if you friend me, I'll, I'll um, give you access to the um, um, University of God's Grace and Mercy group, and in there is where the art where the live video will go um, every Sunday morning at nine o'clock.
0: Got you. Very cool. That's very exciting.
1: You I'm know, excited about it. It's been a long time coming. This vision's been bubbling in me for a while. I got a, I got, I got years of stuff to give.
0: Well, <laughs> cool. and I saw on your website too that you have a podcast.
1: I do. i mean, It's in the infancy stages. You know, uh, back before COVID hit, I was just experimenting, experimenting with it. But once COVID hit, um, the uh, the need for me to do more counseling and coaching and helping people kind of ratcheted up. So I. I uh, put the podcast down for a minute, but I'll be I'll be going back that direction as well.
0: Interesting. Maybe if you re- record your sessions, you can repurpose that in a podcast, perhaps.
1: Huh. Yeah. I thought about that. So that's confirmation. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
0: And I know you also have another book that you wrote. I do. Yeah. Would you like to talk about that a little bit?
1: I would love to say a word about this. Um, so... Uh, depression and suicidal ideation are two areas of my pastoral care and counseling ministry that I focus heavily on and some of the churches that I've served in as the pastor of care leading the counseling ministry and organizations that I've served in I've dealt with suicide over and over again helping walk families through those waters of young people who are on the verge and counseling them back from the edge. And, and thank God we had success in a lot of those areas. Um, a couple times, you know, uh, we had the opposite um, outcome and had to counsel families through the, and not just families, but entire churches, because everybody's impacted by that. Um, so, so I've been in those waters for a long time. Um, but it just became a whole lot more personal uh, in 2014 because my own brother, Ron, uh, who was uh, 16 months older than me, um, took his life. He was living down in Raleigh, North Carolina. He took his life. He took his life. Um, he was 52 years old. He, he The way I term it is that he got stuck in life. He, he was a blue collar guy, you know, um, working for Walmart, Sam's Club, um, and ended up losing his job for some reason, we don't know the details, we'll never know, Um, not on this side of life anyway. And uh, uh, eventually he got depressed, couldn't find another job, um, and, you know, ended up falling into despair. And then July 14th, 2014, he drove into a parking lot, and you know, did the unthinkable, and uh, that that changed our family forever, obviously, and so at that time, I resigned. I was the pastoral minister at Covenant Houses. I was sharing. I was on my eighth year, um, and I was even looking at possibly doing a career serving there because I love serving those young people, but his suicide um, made me rethink my life um, and what you just said, repurpose. That's what I heard in my spirit, am I being a covenant house is something that I could have done forever, but is this the best use of all the gifts that God has given me? Like, so I resigned from there and I started writing in my own bereavement, I started writing and kind of catharting on paper. And uh, uh, this book came about, um, it's eight steps to getting unstuck in life And the subtitle was Lessons My Brother Taught Me After He Committed Suicide. Because um, um, I went down to North Carolina. My other brothers and I went down to North Carolina. We talked to people on a job. We talked to people in his church. We talked to people at the barbershop. Everybody he was connected to while he lived down there. And they all said that once he lost his job and started falling into depression, he separated himself from everybody. And that was the worst thing he could have done, you know, uh, because... You know, that, that kind of stuff, that mindset thrives in isolation. And so um, I was just compelled. When I, I, when, I, when I was journaling and catharting and in my own bereavement, I was writing certain things based on what these people were telling me as well, that, wow, if he could have done this, he could have done this, could have done this, and it ended up being eight steps that if he would have been able to take and stay connected, he probably wouldn't have gone to that extreme, because he would, people would have kept him accountable to a certain extent. And so, when I resigned from Covenant House, I self-published this book, and I put a little team of people around me who believe in the mission and in the ministry and in the in the in the work that God uses me to do for humanity. And we went on a book tour. And not for the sake of selling books, but for the sake of getting this message out and in my brother's honor and to God's glory to help as many people as we could to come back from the edge and realize that life is still worth living and that you can make it through this. So I, I um, uh, turned it into a workshop seminar that I could tailor to any, any context, one hour, two hours, five hours, whatever. And I've done it all over New Jersey, New York, and I'm still looking to do it. Wherever people will have me, I'll come out and do it, you know, um, do it. And even virtually right now in this season, you know, um, I'd be happy to do it for your organization, whatever the case might be. Um, And if people know people who are struggling with that, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, uh, but I, I probably have have more education and experience than most of them, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but, but I do, my degrees are in, um, in psychology, biblical counseling, pastoral care and clinical counseling. So I do have that background and I've done that um, for years and I'm open to helping people even one-on-one right now. If there's families that are listening and watching this, you feel free to reach out to me and I'll do what I can to help. So this is very close to my heart. Thank you for letting me share about this book as well.
0: Um, i know that um especially recently with covid the suicide rate is just like skyrocketing especially veterans i'm hearing but also young very young people are so um affected by the isolation and um and everything and and um uh, it's just it's like an epidemic that's happening and it's not i don't know how much it's really talked about but it's just so important that people know that they're not alone. And, um, do you think that the book would be helpful for, for people that have lost someone recently? Does it help them get through their grief or is it more for like helping prevent?
1: It's more, it's more on, it's more on the prevention end of things. Um, um, I don't think it would be, I don't think I wouldn't recommend it for people. I'm, it depends on where they are in their journey, you know, but primarily it's for those that are in those waters or people that you know that might be dealing with depression um, or close to suicidal ideation. But the other thing about that is that it's for everybody and anybody who's not dealing with suicide at all, but you just may be at a point in life where you're stuck and you need some tips on how to move forward. This is helpful for you too. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Gotcha, so um I don't want to put you on the spot if I'm asking you something that's not with what you're doing, but if if suicide does happen sorry um, what do you what, do you have any recommendations for how to heal from that? I mean, is the journaling something that like what you did is that helpful just to try to wrap your head around it and get past the grief
1: uh, yeah, um absolutely uh, the, first of all, you've got to know that. Um, life will never be the same, especially within the, uh, that nuclear family. Right? Um right. got to accept that it's a new normal now that will be until the end of time because the circle of that family has been broken and somebody's been taken away. So you begin to you um, <clears throat> you never get completely over it. But as time goes on, you learn to adjust to it um, and it gets better it gets better, but it never goes away. Um, my recommendation would be definitely to journal, also to seek some counseling um, for family counseling. There's very good uh, family therapists out there. Uh, there's also groups that you should be a part of in your community. You can you know uh, you can go online and um, and Google like whatever part of the world you live in you you can google here in america i mean there's groups in every city of people suicide uh family family members right survivors of suicide victims etc um so join the group too because that 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 personal touch and camaraderie and hearing other people's stories and 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 letting other people uh help share your burden if you will is is a real uh healing factor so those things you know um those are a couple of things that I would recommend um, because a lot of people, oftentimes, you see when, when uh, a child, especially child, young child, teenager, commits suicide, family members, uh, mom and dad, usually end up pretty depressed, and some of them go close to the edge. So that's why I say immediately get a counselor, get somebody who can, who's a professional who can walk you through this. So you have that that aspect of support. Then you have the group support. And then as a family, do some writing, do some journaling, write a letter to the individual saying all oh, that you wish you could have said, those kind of things, you know, and seal it and just keep it. and Just keep it, you know. So uh, and, and you, you can Google, too. There's a lot of tips, a lot of good tips online. Um, you, know, you can go to the uh, professional counselors uh or you go if you go to psychology today there's good resources there psychologytoday.com and type in um uh resources for you know suicide or su- survivors of suicide or family members there's all kind of good resources right there as well
0: awesome and this might sound kind of like a silly question but for somebody who who is severely depressed and is having ideas of suicide do you think that the book is something that that they would find valuable? Or do you think that that's not a pl- – you'd, you'd have to be someone not – like that it's for somebody that's trying to help someone avoid a situation rather than the actual person with depression? Do, I mean, do you think I that think, would be
1: helpful too? I and, think that if somebody is uh, <clears throat> what we would call – clinically depressed or chronically depressed and really on the edge, uh, uh, teetering with suicidal ideation. I think the first step, be, be forget about the book uh, for, for, for now. Anyway, the first step would be to get on the phone and speak to a counselor, professional counselor, and immediately get into some counseling. And then the book is, this book would be more of a secondary tool in that aspect. But for people that like, are maybe mildly depressed and kind of stuck, or people that are, let's say, people that are uh, midlife and having now because of COVID, having to shift careers. This is a, a good book, a good guide to you know, because because you you begin to get depressed too. Those people fall into depression and feeling like, okay, is my journey over? You know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm too too old to be hired for this and. And I'm not all the you know, those kind of things. People in those categories that are in that weird season right now because the economy has changed. I mean this just it just has eight solid steps to climbing out of any situation. But I do speak here a couple of times specifically mm-hmm. to dealing with the depression and the suicidal ideation. And I tried to write it as as much as I could in layman's terms so that anybody can, you know, just grasp it in regular everyday language and um um Uh, and apply the the principles that, that are
0: here. I think it's, it's wonderful that you put both of these books together and as a way to share what you've learned and your journey forward. And I commend you for that. I think it's doing, you're, you're doing great work and, and I really wanted to have you on just to, to talk to our listeners about your experiences and about being compassionate to those that you serve. And, um, so I'm, I'm really glad we had the chance to talk. Is there anything that you like to share? Anything we haven't touched on?
1: Uh, no, I just want to say that I'm grateful to be able to, thank you for letting me um, share your platform with you this morning. I really appreciate that. I don't um, take that lightly. And um, <clears throat> thank you for letting me share who I am, my story, you know, uh, uh, Thank you. And uh, I do want to share my my website. If people want to get these two books here and other things, um, everything has to do with helping people that are broken in one way or another. That's all that I write about. That's all that I talk about. That's who I am. Uh, MikeBethune.com. My name right there on the screen, MikeBethune.com. You can purchase those uh, right there. Awesome. Uh, you you could just click on the store uh, tab up top. There's all the categories at the top of the website. Just click on store, and you'll see down at the bottom that those both those books are there.
0: Wonderful. And you are available for speaking engagements and and teaching at for corporations and other kinds of um, opportunities as well. And how would someone that wants you to speak get in touch? Right. With
1: you? So again, on the website. Um, there's a contact page there's a contact page for people that just have general questions and then there's kind of an acquisition page i forget what i called it but that's for people a booking page for people who really are ready to book me and there's categories for you to spell out what you might have in uh, in mind for me to do for your organization church whatever the case company um, right there on the website those are there on the top just find the tab it's there
0: Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you. I think that pretty much wraps up what we were going to be talking about. If there's anything else, um, we can have you on again. How does that sound?
1: I would be glad to. Just you say the word, I'm there.
0: All right, great. Uh, well, I wanted to thank you so much, Michael Bethune, for coming onto the Giving Heartbeat and sharing your work with us, sharing your books. Um, like I said, well, I haven't read the the second book, but I I read the first book, and it was it was so impactful for me. I really i, I really think it was wonderful, and um, and I could go through and. Tell you everything I underlined, but um, I think one of the one of the things that struck me was um, when when you talked about a disruption in in a church service, like somebody comes in and maybe they're they're dirty and they're smelly because they are homeless and they might have an addiction, and that how you treat that person. I, I mean, that person could be Christ coming in, wanting you know to see how you're reacting. And how you show that person you care or do you not, or, you know, do you try to get rid of them or, you know, give them a dollar and tell them to go away, or you know, and how you how you um, treat that person is really what's the most important thing.
1: That's right. That's right. If I could just say a word about that, uh, the scripture says at Matthew 25. Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 25, and that's what unto the least of these is predicated on that that very uh, chapter. Um, there's a couple of scriptures in there where these people come to Jesus and they're religious leaders and they're trying to trap them in a conversation and they say, well, what do you expect us to do? You know, how are we to help the poor and we can't help the whole world? And that was just a really a kind of escape language for them not doing anything. And Jesus says uh, history says that he looked at a child that would have been kind of a vagabond and one of the lowest of the low and poor and all that and dirty and said to those religious leaders what you've done unto the least of these you've done unto God in other words the way you treat humanity is a direct reflection of your relationship or lack thereof with God so don't come into the sanctuary raising holy hands and saying you're praising god and you just disregarded broken humanity on your way into the sanctuary yeah
0: yeah very important and and really needed and um again i thank you so much michael i wish you you best with with rtb
1: thank you very much and much success with your podcast as well thank you for The work that you're doing. I mean, I was really excited just to know that, you know, just in the name, giving, you know, um, giving heart and, uh, you know, that what you do is predicated upon compassion as well. I get asked to speak a lot of places and I turn down a lot of stuff just when I see the name of the the, organization. That's not something I want to do. But with yours, I mean, I was, I was elated and um, I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, God bless you and, and the service to humanity that you do as well.
0: Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Giving Heartbeat, where we make unsung heroes into everyday superheroes. Please be my hero. And subscribe, download, rate, and review. And tell all your friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Naomi Charney for my beautiful cover art. Thanks to Chris Hogan for his theme music, Pure Magic. And to audio engineer extraordinaire, Don Sternecker at Mixolydian Studios, please take action today to support nonprofits that connect with your passion. Be the change you want to see in the world. Until next time, the beat goes on. This is Donna Valente. Peace out.